Hello, ladies and gents. You know what it is. It's the Paul Leslie Hour. This time around, it's Paul's interview with songwriter, recording artist, Gerard Kenny. Certainly, Gerard Kenny is a songwriter who has made it through the rain. <laughs> I think you'll agree he is a fascinating artist. In this interview, he tells his story, which begins in New York. Now, these days, Gerard Kenny lives in the United Kingdom and has a dedicated following. In addition to his own records, his music has been recorded by Barry Manilow. Johnny Mathis, Jack Jones, Perry Como, Shirley Bassey, and many others. You know, the Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people like you, right? Listeners, viewers, yes, indeed. Just go to www.thepaulleslie.com support. And thanks to everyone contributing. We hope you enjoyed this interview. Well, we know you will. It's a great one. With Gerard Kenny, an undisputed genius in music and a great storyteller, too. Let's get this interview playing, okay? Right about now. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our great pleasure to welcome singer-songwriter, recording artist, Gerard Kenny. Hello, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing great. From not-so-sunny Sussex in England, is where I am <laughs> calling you from. Well, for all the people who are listening in, no matter where they are in the world, my first question, who is Gerard Kenny? Well, I come from Long Island, New York. I grew up in the uh, 50s and 60s. And, of course, my, my dad was in vaudeville, so we had... My dad didn't have a record collection. He had sheet music. So at five, six, I went to the piano, and we'd take down all the old songs, and we'd go through those, you know, George Gershwin and Cole Porter and Hoagie Carmichael and, and Rogers and Hart, and those were, I, that's what I cut my teeth on, all those kinds of songs. And then, of course, my older brother, he was about seven years older than I was, and he was in the, uh, the 50s time, was his time, you know, Elvis and all the wonderful doo-wop songs and all that uh, stuff. So. That was, you know, really, really uh, prevalent around the house when he had, you know, his little machine with all the little uh, 45s on it, you know, and they dropped down and everybody was doing the Lindy. And then, of course, for me, when the Beatles hit, that was it. I mean, that was just unbelievable. And that was my time. Just, you know, sort of took all those things together and they sort of married inside me. And that, that's what became my style of playing. Now, when you think back, can you remember specific records that were your all-time favorites? Oh, sure. I mean, there are a lot of different genres that I, I can think back to. I think we won in a, in a contest at, at the local church. I think we won a hi-fi, and it came with a bunch of records. And in that bunch of records were uh, cover versions of Broadway shows, and also there was a copy of Leonard Bernstein conducting the uh, New York Philharmonic on uh, Rhapsody in Blue. So all the wonderful show songs from My Fair Lady and, and, and all that, and, uh, they were just absolutely wonderful. And, uh, of course, Leonard Bernstein. So I'd stand up on a pot and I'd, I'd conduct Leonard Bernstein with a wooden spoon. And uh, <laughs> it was what I used to do. It was just fun. And that, you know, was part of my wonderful... And funny, years later, I got to be the last collaborator of Alan J. Lerner. And, uh, and the man who wrote My Fair Lady, and uh, I worked with Alan, and we wrote a musical together. 
So it, it all went, you know, around in one big circle. I wanted you to tell us about your parents. Well, my mother was a teacher. She was just a housewife and a teacher in Long Island. And my father was, uh, had been in vaudeville, but by the time the war came along, that got rid of it. And he, uh, after the war, he just became, um, uh, he worked for Abercrombie & Fitch in New York. It was a, was a buyer, a clothing buyer. And uh, he'd go to New York City, and we lived on Long Island. And it was that typical 50s, you know, leave it to beaver life where, you know, daddy went to the train and, you know, mommy, well, I guess my mother, uh, she taught in the local school. And uh, he'd come home and uh, we had a normal sort of regular house, you know, regular time. We had a great time. I mean, we had woods where we lived and we played baseball and we played, you know, stickball and you name it. We, you know, we had the regular growing up in the 50s and 60s type life with good humor trucks and all the rest of that. And it was great. I had a wonderful upbringing. You know, it was wonderful because there were so many kids everywhere. We were the baby boomers. There were so many everywhere. Well, tell us about your first performance. I understand it took place at a young age. Yeah, I was six. Um, our lo- one of our local churches was uh, raising money, I think, for a new roof or something. And my father said to me, would you like to play with me on stage? And I said, oh, because my father was fairly a name in, in, the, uh, in the community as a great singer. He sang at weddings and all sorts of things like that in church. And everybody knew my dad. He had a beautiful tenor voice, uh, Irish tenor voice. So he said, uh, we're going to be doing some stuff on, uh, on this variety show to raise money. So I sang Where or When with my father. They had to put a Yellow Pages on the pedal for me to reach it. And I sang harmony with my father playing Where or When at six years old. And it was a, it was a big bite. It bit me. The, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the bug bit me, and that was it. And I said, boy, this is pretty good. You just play the piano and they clap. <laughs> <laughs> well, what specifically is it about the piano that you like? Well, the funny thing was that's what we had. And I think a lot of people, I mean, you talk about Billy Joel and Barry Manilow and Neil Sedak and all that. You had a piano in the house, and that was very middle class. So that's what I had. I mean, we didn't have guitars and, and, and drums and things like that. That came later with my brothers and sisters and all that kind of stuff. But there was a piano in the house. There was a big thing at my father's generation where people sat around and sang. So that was their entertainment. They were pre-television people. The people who went through World War II were not television people. They only became television people after it started to happen. But we grew up with television. It's like my my children grew up with Mario Brothers. So, I mean, they grew up with computers. I don't think my children ever understood that you had to get up off the couch and go change the channel on the television by getting up and walking over to it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I did as a kid. You know, that was a well, I remember one of our friends in, in the neighborhood had a, um, a a clicker that you could change the channels of, of the of the TV, and that was a big deal. But the guy three three doors down had an electric um, garage door, and every time he changed the channel, it would open the garage guy's garage door. <laughs> it was on the same frequency, so it was all a bit you know the beginning of it all. And when you think now, you know what we're doing. I'm talking to you on Skype, and here I am in England. And where are you, by the way? In Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, you're in Atlanta, Georgia. Across. I played there once. Oh, yeah? I played, I played there once. With, yeah, I opened for Sheena Easton there in 1982. Where? What venue? It was outside. I remember people came up with their picnic. It was really beautiful. Chastain Park, I bet. Probably. But yeah. It was really posh. I mean, they came up with silver service and beautiful uh, napkins and everything was gorgeously done. And 
they put everything down on it. Oh, it was a gorgeous thing. I mean, it was just so, oh, how classy. Loved it. I thought it was great. I wanted you to take us back and tell us about the first time you wrote a song. Can you remember that? Yeah, it was a heartbreaker, of course, a love song. My girlfriend in high school, I was a junior in high school, and she gave me up for another guy. I wrote this song called I Should Have Realized, and that was the first song I ever wrote. And actually, we got a deal on Warner Brothers with that, with Jerry Ragavoy. Wow, incredible. Yeah, we met Jerry Ragavoy, Doc Palmas, and Morty Schumann. And those are the guys at the time, um, I think, uh, Jerry Ragavoy had written uh, Time is on My Side, which was a blues thing that was a real blues, real black record, which was picked up by the Stones, which was their first, actually their first release in America. And he had written um, Take a Little Piece of My Heart, which was uh, never to be done by the Whites. And uh, Janis Joplin picked that one up. And, and he hated it. He hated the version of it. I said, this is number one. He said, yeah, I hate it. I hate you. He hated it. Because <laughs> you know, he loved the real black feel, you know, that really wonderful blues R&B. So a lot of his records were on the R&B. You have WWRL in New York and all that. And we used to listen to that. We used to listen to Sam and Dave on that. We used to listen to Otis Redding on that. That's where you could get that kind of sound in New York. You wouldn't get it on WINS Winds because that was a real, you know, that was the more middle middle of the road type stuff that they played. You know, they played much more uh, at the very beginning. They played things like you know uh, Doris Day, and they played uh, Frank Sinatra, and then they played, and then it got a little bit better because you got. The Beach Boys came along, or you had Pat Boone, or, you know, that kind of stuff. But you wouldn't get the real R&B, like the Philly stuff and the, and, the, and the New York stuff and the Detroit stuff. And listen, you listen to WWRL. You, gotta, you had to be hip to know which one to listen to. But because you were in New York, it was available. And a lot of those stations, like in Philadelphia, a lot of those areas in Delaware and all, that's all they ever listened to. And that's why that whole Sam and Dave Stacks records and all that, when that whole funk thing really came in, that's where it grew from. And then Barry Gordy, of course, created Motown out of uh, his first record, Do You Love Me? That was Gar Barry Gordy singing. Do you love me? Do you love me? And then that was his record. He got some money and then invested in Motown. And then was a very smart businessman and brought in, I remember we did this show. I was a, a sophomore in high school, and it was Murray the K. Now, Murray the oh, K yeah. was W-I-N-S, and you submarine race watchers out there. And uh, he had Bobby Darren come and do a night at the Brooklyn Fox Theater, and it was a one of those things like they have American Idol. You know, you can come and do, you know, and, and audition and see if you've got any talent. And I put together a, a group of four girls and uh, a bass player and a drummer and I played piano and we had a guitar player and we went in and played for them and I taught them all the harmonies and I think they did um, he's so fine shoe lunch and Bobby Darren was one of the judges and they did very very well and uh, Bobby Darren you know, said hey I think I might want to record them and we were like goodbye boys you know forget <laughs> it you know you're you're out of here and I saw Stevie Wonder for the very first time at th 13 years old do fingertips and that was live at the Brooklyn Fox, and it was amazing. Amazing. Was just amazing. Wow. You had several bands growing up, and earlier in the interview, you mentioned Billy Joel, and you actually played with Billy Joel in a band. Yeah, I did. Uh, my first band was called the Phaetons. We were the ones who were on uh, Warner Brothers with Jerry Rangavoy. And didn't you mention something about three weeks, four days, and 15 hours in, in one of the emails? I think I did, actually. 
I tell you, I can't, I, I didn't even remember we did that song. We had a release, that was one of the releases, a single release. It sounded a lot like the Association, if anybody goes back that far. I also, we had an, another one called Where Are You that Morty Schumann had written with Jerry Ragavoy. And I wrote most of the B-sides. And uh, I think we did a, a, Pet a Petula Clark cover. But we then did, uh, after, the, after we started to grow up, sort of after high school, what would happen, you know, we were going to college, and people who were into it stayed in the music, and people went off to be lawyers or accountants or something or else. And as you moved up, the people around you who were going to stay in the music started to come together. And I was playing in a pub one night with a bass player who used to work with Billy Joel, and he invited him down. And Billy was working on his Cold Spring Harbor album and needed some money. Just needed money for his rent, so came up, came up and said, Do you, "Can I, can I play with you guys?" And we started playing together. We had a band called Primo, and Billy played. Um, he was, he was into the Nice, and uh, he loved, he loved, and uh, Stevie Winwood. So he, he had a Hammond organ, and I played Wireless Electric Piano, Electric Piano. So I was the piano player, and Billy Joel was the organ player. And then we'd switch over, and I'd play organ, and he'd play piano. And uh, we, we, uh, that was the time when Maybe I'm Amazed came out, when the, the first single from McCartney when he started Wings. And we did that, and all of a sudden we had people around the, around the block trying to, you know, come in and see us at the local, you know, places to play, you know, like uh, McDimples and places like that. And these were just local, you know, pubs, you know, the, uh, local bars. And, of course, the, uh, the owners would let in all these people in the police department to come and say, you got too many people here, and they'd have to shut it down. But it was really great. I mean, uh, it was great to play with Billy Joel because it was the first time in my life I got to play with somebody who knew. You know what I mean? I used to carry the bands I was in. I mean, not to say that the other guys weren't great musicians, but I mean, I wrote everything. I did all the arrangements. I did, you know, I was the one who you know, said, okay, let's do this and the chords go like that and explain things to people in the arrangements. Billy, I didn't have to say anything to him. He heard it as well. Ah, I and see. It, and it was great. It was really great. We did a version of Salty Dog, which was Procol Harum. And years later, I, I saw him uh, in New York and I said, you did our arrangement. He sang it with Elton at Yankee Stadium. I said, that's our arrangement. Do you realize? He said, yeah, I knew he did that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, Billy will always be the first to say, if you want to listen to my first couple of albums, you can hear a lot of the riffs I stole from Gerard Kenny. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, when you, when you were with Billy Joel, was that when you were playing, like, the piano bars around the village? No, it was, no, after that, I mean, I was doing piano bars, I was playing with Billy, you know, because you could play piano bars during the week, and it was an easier gig for just one guy to get a job. Then when you had four guys, you know, you had to have a, you know, a place that held at least four or five hundred people to be able to play. So you can go into a piano bar on your own and make money at night. Uh, just to put in your pocket, you know, and I'd go into New York or I'd, uh, I'd be on Long Island and, and I'd do piano bars. So that all coincided around the same time. And then Billy went off to do his, um, his album. That's, and that's when he had his whole freak scene became, he became Billy Martin and went out to the LA. Oh, yeah. And, he, and played, played in piano bars. It was, he called himself Billy Martin and that's when he wrote Piano Man. Great stories. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was fabulous. Well, tell us about meeting. Mr. Dre Shepard. Oh, Dre Shepard. This is funny. Uh, there was a really cool club on Long Island called My Father's Place where big names would come. I mean, they'd have, you know, uh, the Mothers of Invention would play there and they had uh, Seals and Croft play there. Big names, Johnny Winter, blah, 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 blah. It was like the hottest place on Long Island. 
And other than like um, the places that you know, like the Fillmore and all that, you could play in New York. So they would probably do the Fillmore in New York and come out to Long Island and do that when they were on tour. That was another gig for them to play. So to play at my father's place was a really cool thing. And the guy who owned my father's place was a friend of mine from high school that I'd known for years. And he always thought that we were good and he always wanted to you know, get us a gig. So we played at this place, my father's place, and we got a really, really lot of people down there. And one of the people happened to be in the audience said, listen, there's somebody's doing a musical and they need what they need is a musical doctor. Someone to doctor up the script of the, actually the score. So uh, Mike Epstein said to me, he said, I've got this lady's name and you can go in and see her. So I met this lady with a with a, uh, a guy who was a lyricist and the guy who was the composer. The composer was also the um, the choreographer, but he was more of a he's much more of a choreographer. He wasn't really a, a musician. It was it was sort of the best musician they could find at the time for the show. So I said, no, actually, you could do this and do that. With and that was Dre Shepard, was, was the guy who was there as, as the lyricist. So we got together. I said, hey, listen, you want to get together and write a couple of things? So we wrote a couple of things for this show, sort of an off-Broadway thing. That really never went anywhere. But I met Dre and said, wow, you, you're a really good lyricist. Not, you know, I've got, I've got ideas for melodies. Can we get together? Let's, let's write some stuff. And that's when we started writing together. That was in 1975, long time ago. I wanted to ask about one specific song that you wrote, a terrific song. I made it through the rain. Yeah. Well, what happened was I had been playing down in, in the 70s. What you had was you had either cover bands or disco. And that was that whole thing with John Travolta with the disco and the, and the, um, the thing of uh, uh, the Bee Gees and all that stuff was so gigantic. And, oh, who else you had? Uh, Love to love you, baby. And all those in Giorgio Morota and all that kind of stuff was really where it was at. Four on the bass drum and all that stuff. And I had original material that I wanted to sing. You know, I, I didn't want to do disco stuff. So the only kind of places in New York you could go to do original music was the gay clubs. And they'd have an open mic on Friday nights, on, on Tuesday nights. I was working with a girl by the name of Carol Sager at the time, and she was working with Peter Allen. And I'd written a couple of things with her. And she said, you ought to go down to this place called Reno Sweeney because they have an open mic on a Tuesday night. And if they like you, they'll give you a gig. So I went down. And I met uh, Friedman, I think his name was. And um, he was this little guy. And he said, I, I auditioned for him. He said, yeah, you can, you can, you know, you had to audition to do the open mic. And I did that. And they, he said, yeah, I'll put you in for two weeks. And I opened for Leslie Gore for two weeks at, at that club. And it sort of opened up a whole world of that. I mean, Louis St. Louis, the guy who wrote Grease, was down there. And uh, let's see who else would play down there. Um, oh, the Captain and Tennille had just started out, and they played down there. And uh, Manhattan Transfer started down there. And it's because they all had their own original music. And it was impossible to try and get original music around unless it was disco. So, of course, there's got to be an outlet somewhere for some things. And, and, and it was all those clubs called Brothers and Sisters and all that. Barry Manilow was doing the, the, the baths with Bette Midler, playing at a band in the baths while she was up there doing her gig. And all these guys were in, a, were in a, a, a big swimming pools that were hot, you know, like uh, hot baths. That's how everybody was, you know, anybody could skin their cat any way they could. That's what <laughs> kept going, you know. So it was a real wild time. And what happened after that, that, that two weeks that I was doing at uh, Reno Sweeney, Someone came in and asked me to go to Saint-Tropez. 
And I said, yeah, right. I'm a New Yorker, right? You know, like I'm from Missouri. I'm going to go to San Tropez. I mean, that's one of the most beautiful places in the world. They said, no, no, we actually are looking for someone to play. And uh, so I gave them a cassette and I gave them a f my card and they called me and they had me come in. They hired a recording studio just for me to play because they said, that, that recording you did, I, I had done demos. That sounds like Elton John. I said, well, that's not Elton John. First of all, that's all original music. And if you've got an original tape of Elton John, you could probably make a pirate album out of it. I said, no, no, that's all my stuff. And uh, so I sat and played for them for 25 minutes, and, and they said, we'd love you to come to Saint-Tropez and, and play in this, in this beautiful piano bar and right on the port in Saint-Tropez. And uh, that's how I got to Europe. And that was 1977. And I played and I met all these different people like Roger Vadim, the great uh, movie director, and oh, Peter Sellers was down there. You name it, all these movie stars were all down there. And Donna Summer, that's the one. That she did a show down there and uh, all, all these different things. And um, by the time I was jamming with all these different people and all that kind of stuff, um, I got an offer from Eddie Barkley, who was the head of French Barkley Records. I didn't want to stay in France. I wanted to go to, I wanted to go to England. I wanted to, you know, to see where the Beatles were. So I was touring all over Europe and I was doing Germany and Switzerland and all that other stuff. And, everything else. and I said, no, no, I want to go to England. So I just packed it up and, and, and got on a ferry and went over from Calais and went over to, to Folkestone in, in, in England and uh, came over because I knew some people. I met them down in the south of France. They said, if you ever go, th go to England, come on in. So I'd met this one band that had worked down there. It was an English band. And I said, hey, look, I'm going to be able to go through London. Can you guys, you know, what are you guys doing? Show me the place. Show me around. So I got invited to this party. And a party happened to be for a big star here in England, a guy by the name of Dennis Waterman. And his manager was there. Of course, I, you know, I don't take drugs. I play take piano. And I sat down with the guys from the band that I knew from the south of France. We all started a jam. And we're doing everything. We're doing Eric Clapton songs, and we were doing this, we were doing that, and, you know, uh, you know, just rock funk stuff. And then I started to play some of my own songs. And this little lady walked over to me. She said, are those your own songs? I said, yeah, they are. She said, well, where are you from? I said, I'm from New York. I said, I'm, I'm, I just came from Europe, and I'm, I'm looking for a deal. And she said, but, well, she said, well, have you got a manager? I said, no. You got a publisher? I said, no. Did you get a record deal? I said, no. She said, well, maybe my husband can help you. I said, right, okay, what's he do? Uh, what did he bring, his Rolls or his Bentley? She <laughs> said, actually, he brought the Bentley. And I looked out the window, and there was this beautiful Bentley. I said, oh, so he manages this guy who's this TV star. And they took me around, this guy by the name of D. Garland. He took me around all the different radio, uh, uh, all the record companies, EMI, and, and, this, and eventually RCA. He really, really liked what I did. And they offered me a two-year deal uh, with two albums and four singles. But the thing was, I had to come and live in England for two years. And then I fell in love with, it, with England. And uh, that was, oh, that was 1978. What is the musical scene like over there in England now? Now, I think, I think it's sort of a worldwide situation. I don't think you have that much difference. You know how when the Beatles hit, it hit America like we were we were all into the into the Beach Boys and we were all into uh, the Four Seasons and stuff like that. And all of a sudden the Beatles sound came. It was that Liverpool sound. It was like, wait a minute. What is that? It was so different. It was like, wow, boom. It, it was just something that, that just took everybody by storm. You really don't have that much difference really going on. Like 
If you listen to the top 20 over here and the top 20 in America, a lot of it is, you know, is, is, is the rap songs. A lot of it is Lady Gaga and, you know, the stuff that are still hits in America. So there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of difference going on really at this time. It's, nobody has broken out into its own feel. That is a new feel that, that will then, like what happened when you had the Liverpool sound and that changed everybody. I don't see anything going on yet anywhere that there's anything really happening. It's kind of stagnant, I think. I mean, we really haven't had some very big, because the songs, there's no songs, really. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. there's, not a, there's not big songs anymore. I mean, in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the, one, the one song, I tell you, it, it, the, the saddest thing, that when, when Amy Winehouse died, I, I just couldn't believe that. I mean, she was such a young, talented girl. And uh, in uh, 08, she won the Grammy for the best song called Love is a, a Losing Game. If you listen to that song, now that's a song. I mean, Billie Holiday could sing that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, 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 you know, it, it's a song song. It's a brilliant song. You, you could just take it, and anybody could take that song. Sinatra could have sung it, or, you know, whatever. I mean, you, you, Barbara Streisand could sing it, or, you know, in a funkier way, Elton could have sung it, you know, because it's a song song. And it, it's it, there was much more in that girl to come, and it, uh, this is a real, a real shame that the, this poor girl died. I mean, but um, I say, you know, what can I tell you? I mean, yeah, karma is a very odd thing. So what can I tell you? When you look back at all the songs that you've written, I don't know if this is even possible, but could you pick a favorite song? I don't know. As you, we were talking about, made it through the rain. That whole thing came about by me going to Europe and getting a deal. Because uh, uh, Billy had sort of been like the piano man of America and New York. And it was very difficult when you were from Long Island to get a, to get a deal in New York City because New York, New York City had an attitude about Long Island. And it wasn't like, oh, it's, it's out on the island. So if you were from Ohio and came in, you had a better chance of getting a deal than you did from getting from Long Island. You only had a few people that broke through from Long Island. You had uh, the Vanilla Fudge broke through. You had the, the Young Rascals, actually, they were from Westchester. They broke through. Let's see, Harry Chapin broke through. He was from Long Island. Billy Joel finally broke through. And uh, it was tough because Billy, um, I mean, Billy had it all made. And then all of a sudden, Bruce Springsteen came along and uh, was said to be by Rolling Stone, the future of rock and roll. The people who were in charge of Billy Joel at CBS or at Columbia Records at the time had problems, and they left Columbia Records. So the so <laughs> Billy <laughs> Billy was like left at, at at Columbia Records without his representation. And what was so funny, I tell you one funny story about Billy. Once his fifth album came out, because they didn't push him as much as they should have, and uh, he had one flop after another. And eventually, what was happening was that on his fifth album that he did, which was the Stranger album, he had all the, um, the radio stations, the FM stations from the colleges playing I Love You Just The Way You Are as a cut. Because Anthony, you know, works in the grocery store. That one was the moving out was a single and didn't do anything. And this, this song kept playing all across the country on all the different radio stations, FM stations from the colleges. And all of a sudden the colleges, and it was, a, it was like an, the kind of song that makes you want to buy an album. It's like, wait a minute, I like this guy, let's hear more of him. Yeah. 
And they went out and they bought his album. And all of a sudden, one day came where they said at CBS, uh, at Columbia, we better put this out as a single. When his single went to number one, his album, The Stranger, was number one. It was the day that his contract with CBS or, or Columbia Records was up. His publishing deal was up. And his management <laughs> deal was up. He was free and clear of everything on the, on the day everything was number one. That, that's an amazing thing. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So then, then his wife took over as his manager, and, uh, and then all, all the rest of that happened. But Billy then really went ba-boom and uh, he, he proved himself, or, you know, uh, that, that he could be as big of a seller. I mean, heck, I mean, he sold 20, 20 million records on, on one of his albums. I mean, that's, that, that was a heck, of a heck of a thing to do. But getting back to the idea of Made It Through the Rain, after I had gone through this place that I played in the south of France, I played five nights, six nights a week, five shows a night. It was a real tough gig. And when I finally finished it and I came to, uh, to London and, and got my record deal, I came back and I sat down to uh, Dre Shepard and for two or three hours. I, I said, this is what happened. And he looked at me and I had this melody that I'd already been fooling with called I've Seen It All Before. The happiness and heartaches, I've seen it all. He said, wait a minute. He said, hey, man, you made it through the rain. And that's where the title came from. Nice. And that, and that was it. And the original one was that the original lyric is, a true musician plays through all the rainy days, and somehow he survives. He keeps his music warm, protects it from the song until his luck arrives. And when I gave, Barry came over. I, I had a, a top hit over here called New York, New York. So, so good they named it twice. And that became a hit right away, boom, uh, in England. And Barry came over and did had a real big hit with Copacabana. So he, we were both published by Chapel, Warner Chapel. And I went to his big do that they had for him, because I knew him from New York. He said, oh, you got a hit record? I said, yeah, things are going good. This is, this is great. And she said, I said, i got an album, too. Well, he said, i got a few songs on there, Barry, you might like. So I gave him a copy of the album. And uh, when he called me, called me back about six weeks later, and he said, he said, it's very subjective. I, I did a, a, a song once called Studio Musician on one of my albums, and he said, he said, it's a very subjective thing. I'd like to make it more objective. I'd like to change it to be, instead of musician, about a dreamer, and every, because everybody's a dreamer. I said, I said, Barry, whatever you have to do, go ahead. So they changed about eight or nine words, really, because uh, by the others who got rained on to and made it through. I mean, that's still Dre Shepard. I mean, a lot of it is all still Dre. And uh, that came out, and that went ba-boom. I mean, that was, that was one of those songs. I'll tell you why it's just so amazing to me. I was doing a tour. Uh, I was asked to do a, a big show on, on the Queen, uh, I think it was a QE2. And the QE2 was going around the world, and one of the places it stopped was in Egypt. And I'd always want to me, you know, Egypt growing up, you know, it was Bela Lugosi, and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and of course you had the, the mummy and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I wanted to go out and ride a camel and see the Sphinx and go down the, the, the pyramids. I did all that. And then uh, we were going to go on uh, one of those Pharaoh's cruises where it takes you down the Nile and you get to see belly dancers and sw swirling dervishes and all that kind of stuff. So we had an hour's wait. So I brought, uh, I brought my wife into the Radisson Hotel and we got into the elevator. And on the way up, there was music in the elevator. And Barry Mantle, I was singing, I made it through the rain. I looked at her. I said, that's it. I've made it as a songwriter. Wow. I'm in Cairo, 
and they're playing my song. <laughs> that was the most unbelievable thing. Other than anything else, of hearing myself on the radio with a hit or anything, being in Cairo and hearing my song, I said, you, you know, you can't get any more far out than that. <laughs> no, not at all. That really was amazing. Tell all the listeners out there about One More Turn and also Beach Radio. Ah, well, okay, this is Dre's influence because Dre loves to write musicals. And uh, Dre, that's where Dre came up. You know, I, I'd make him write me pop songs and he'd make me write musical songs. And of course, having been brought up with my dad and, and all those wonderful songs from, the, from Broadway that I learned, I can groove in that groove. So we started with this idea that, I don't know if you know this, but in New York, if you're a dancer in New York and you go for an audition for a Broadway show, if your CV or your, you know, you know what a CV is, it says you're over 40, they say, forget it. Don't even bother doing it because we, we don't want over 40s. And you could have been 39 two weeks ago and you could have been dancing in, you know, Hairspray or whatever it is and, or the Andrew Lloyd Webber show. When you turn 40, they don't want you. That's it. So this unspoken law and those people who are still very, 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 uh, uh, in great health and great and still fine and able to dance, but they want young people. So there's an organization in New York called Dancers Over 40 who all got together and they do shows. And one of the guys, a very good friend of Dre's, is in this and he knows all these people. So we decided to write them like a review of an idea that they could do as a show, a whole show, like their own little show when they go to these places that do charities and stuff like that. And he came up with the idea of one more turn, one more turn, like a turn, like you turn around, literally turn around. But a turn is also known in show business. A turn is an act like the top turn on a bill is the star of the show. Right. Right. So he was using that as, you know, a, a double entendre with the two things. So one more turn, but it's one more turn, one more chance to dance again. And so that was the, the, the lead song that we've got uh, about One More Turn. Then we wrote all the different songs about different things, about, you know, the girls whose feet hurt. And, and uh, they're, they're really crazy about this one guy. And he, he, he does a perfect omelet and a perfect jure de thé. And if he didn't tell you, you'd swear he wasn't gay. But the story of our <laughs> lives, oh, God, every time we go there. Things, everything that happens in the dance world, it's all about that. There's a, a wonderful song called Eight O'Clock Blues. Well, one of these wonderful ladies who is a big star as a dancer you know, is overage, and of course she's not dancing anymore, and now she's on her second bottle of wine, and she hears the clock tick 8 o'clock, and it's, wait a minute, I used to be on stage. You know, they're all, the, the curtains parting and the music starting, and where am I? I'm sitting here alone in my apartment drinking wine, and I'm my heart broken. You know, there's all these different things about what it's like to be dancers. And that was very well. They've done it in a few places. They've done it in Japan. They've done it in a few other places. And then uh, Beach Radio was an idea for an off-Broadway show and uh, about young kids on their senior year in high school and the, tra the changes they were going through about what school they're going to go to. You know how you really get freaked out on your senior year? Like, do I get into the school I'm supposed to get into? Right. And then, they, of course, they have it on the board by the library that says, you know, so-and-so's going to this school or that guy got into Brown or something, and, and you want to get into a really good school, and you're really freaked out if you don't. And it, it's all about the, you know, the, the last time your mother's going to be doing your laundry and you can borrow the car. You've got to go out and be your own person. And it's that last summer of freedom. And it's all about that. 
And that was off-Broadway for about, oh, six weeks, seven weeks. But it won the uh, Vivian Ellis Prize over here. They, they thought it was great over here. But um, that was that. So that's my thing. Um, I'd written with Alan Lerner. Um, uh, we wrote a musical together called My Man Godfrey. But uh, unfortunately, Alan died before we'd finished it. But that was an amazing thing to write with Alan, Alan Lerner. He was just, to be able to, uh, a man that was just so, such a genius. I walked in the first time meeting him. It was just incredible. He had this beautiful, beautiful um, townhouse in, in London and had five, four Oscars on the, on the mantelpiece. He had five. He didn't know where the other one was. He said, it's around here somewhere. I thought, my God, <laughs> just to have one. Yeah. It was unbelievable. And can you imagine what it was like for me when he would call me up? And uh, he was, milk, uh, he was um, Cole Porter's protege. And I was his protege. I was in my 30s, and he was in his 60s. And he'd call me up, and he'd say, my dear boy, I have a lyric. And I'd go over to his house, and you imagine what it was like to be handed a piece of paper with words on it. Alan J. Lerner's words. I mean, Incredible. You know, you know, the, the guy who wrote some of the greatest things in the world that you've ever heard. I mean, Gigi and Paint Your Wagon and, and Brigadoon and On a Clear Day and Camelot. And I mean, forget about it. And there it is with no music to it. And he'd go, okay, my boy, sit down and write it. And I'd sit down and I'd write it. And then he'd get mad at me for doing it. He said, I worked for two weeks on that. And you just, I said, well, Alan, you made it so easy. Because <laughs> it, it was just the way, the way it was constructed was I could feel the emotion. I hear emotion as music. That's, that's what mm. a composer does. And I hope to God the emotion that I, the music I hear for that emotion you will actually say, yeah, I feel that emotion too. And it, 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 it's a human thing that happens. Like if something is in the minor, we feel sad. If something is a major, we feel good. So, so we do have things to, uh, to understand together. And there's certain things that I know if I played that, you say, yeah, that's a happy song. Or in tempo, or, or if I slow the tempo down and make it in minor, you say, oh, that's a sad song. So there are things that people know right away. And you can use those tricks. To, to make the emotion of the song the way it should be. And I, I would read the lyric and read where he wanted to go. And I guarantee you, what happens is as, as you start to write a song, the song starts to take over and show you where it wants to go. It tells you. And as it tells you to go these places that you want to go, there's, the emotion starts to rise. And I guarantee you, every time I wanted to go up, there was a vowel at the end of the sentence. Alan had made it constructed because you can't sing on a high note you can't sing a, 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 a consonant you need an ah or a new or you, know, you need a soft soft sound and he knew that the, the essence of that emotion would be up there and it was always right for the voice it was just an amazing thing to watch him do the structure and it was just he taught me so much about writing for the, for the Broadway stage it was just an amazing thing and I really do miss him every day actually he, it was just wonderful to be able to work with somebody like that. For the people who are listening in, wherever they are, they can connect to you on the web. So I was hoping you could share with everyone your website so people can find out more. Right. I'm at Gerard, all small case, G-E-R-A-R-D-K-E-N-N-Y dot co dot U-K. All right. And I've got a, I've got a, a personal assistant, who uh, Rosie. And she'll take care of everything, anything you need, anything about my discography. And I've had a lot of albums out over here. And uh, I've done things on Facebook. I've played a lot of my friends' stuff on Facebook. And they said, wow, where can we get a hold of that? So I've put them. 
put them over there. I've, I've had six or seven albums out over here and, uh, and in Europe and in Japan and places like that. And so if, you, if you're interested in listening to some of the songs that, uh, that I've done, and uh, you can have a listen to them and um, get on to Rosie and she can get them for you. Well, Mr. Kenny, I have one final question. And I actually hope that one day we can do another interview because I have to say you're incredibly good at expressing not only the stories but also what it all means. But my last question for anyone who's listening, wherever they are in the world, what are your parting words of wisdom? Just love it. That's the way. That's the secret. You got to love it. <laughs> if you want something, just love it. If it's and and the people you're with, just love them. Because if if you love something and you really love it, you'll leave no stone unturned. This is a very difficult time we live in, and it's very very difficult for anybody starting out now in this business. But if you really love it. You will skin the cat your way. Everybody, you can listen to everybody's biography is different. Somebody did it one way, somebody did another. No one's is ever exactly the same. It's because they wanted it and they did it the way they did it because that was what they came up with. That was how they thought they should do it. And they kept at it and they kept at it and they didn't let anybody knock them down. And if this is what you want to do, you get up out of bed and you look in the mirror and go, this is where I live. This is my heart. This is my soul. This is what I love. And just love it. And just realize, if you've got it, it's in you already. So it's just convincing everybody else. That's all you got to do. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com Click on Support the Show and thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song Corina Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me! The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.